Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. beginning of the month, Israel was supposed to annex part of the West Bank. It wasn't clear how much, it wasn't clear who was going to be living there, but what was clear is that this would be a move that would seriously derail the negotiated two-state solution that had been at the center of the way that the world had thought about a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for, you know, basically as long as we've been talking about this in the modern era. But a funny thing happened. The right-wing Israeli government under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did not annex part of the West Bank. In fact, it doesn't look like they'll be doing it anytime soon. It's unclear when these plans will resume or under what circumstances they would, but things are seriously off track. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about why the plan to annex uh, part of the West Bank got derailed, and we're going to talk about what this plan has done to uh, specifically the way that Israel's most important ally, the United States, uh, has thought and talked about the conflict. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. What's going on? That's right. I said, as always, because though for the past three weeks, it has only been some combination of the two of us, (laughs) we're all here. Things are regular. We did it. I Yay, vacation. I am coming to you from a newly painted uh, podcast studio, and I say podcast studio in quotes because it's been newly painted, because soon your humble home studio will be converted into a nursery because my wife and I are having a baby, a little little worldly baby coming in November. So Yay! we've been holding off talking about it on the show, but I, I just want all of you to be psychologically prepared for the fact that I will be going on parental leave and you won't hear my lovely voice for some period of time. Hopefully around November. I don't know. Jen, Jen, and Alex will be will be more than sufficient to, to guide you through the perils of the world as we're talking about this. If I don't die from paint fumes while we're recording this, because this is very smelly. Now, you're going to commit here and now that the baby's name will be worldly, right? Uh, middle name. Mm-hmm. Middle name. Okay, <laughs> I'll take it. That's maybe, fine. Maybe a Hebrew name. Um, <laughs> well, I'll figure, out, I'll figure out what the Hebrew for worldly is. I'm not exactly sure what the translation would be. It'll uh, be Jen Worldly Beecham. Yes. No, you're... Also, Esmond Beecham, come on, we're, we're an egalitarian household. And by that, I mean I could not convince my wife to only do my, my last name. <laughs> Atta girl, Katie. <laughs> um, congratulations, Zach, and congratulations, Katie. That's amazing. Oh, thanks, everybody. Um, Podcast baby. So, oh, that's all. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad Podcast you, the worldly baby. audience, knows. Jen and Alex obviously knew. Um, but... All right, let's talk about uh, the opposite of having a child, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in terms of levels of joy and happiness. Though this does appear to be uh, a rare form of good news when we're talking about what's going on there, right? The annexation plan, uh, Jen, was was widely perceived to be, outside of Israel anyway, a disaster for the state of the conflict. 
Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of back up, you, you touched on this in, in your intro, but just to kind of, you know, remind people who don't, you know, maybe study this stuff as closely or obsessively as uh, the Worldly Crew does, um, under the kind of traditional two-state framework that historically has been supported by the U.S. and, and most of the international community, um, most of the West Bank, which is the West Bank literally because it's to the west of the Jordan River. Um, so confusingly to the east of Israel, to be clear. Right, but to the east of Israel. Um, but the West Bank would be basically given to the Palestinians as part of like a final peace deal. So the Israelis and Palestinians themselves would negotiate like what to do about these settlements. So there are Jewish settlements that have been built up over the years. Some of them are, are really heavily populated blocks that are like close to Israel's like current recognized borders. Um, and so those areas, it was kind of like always assumed that as part of this final deal, those would be ceded to Israel. That would become Israel proper. Other parts of the West Bank would become essentially part of it, a future internationally recognized independent Palestinian state. Um, those peace talks, uh, as you may know, have stalled for years, and there's no deal anywhere on the horizon, basically. Um, and so instead, like the Israeli right basically has been pushing for Netanyahu's government, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, to just go ahead and, and unilaterally annex just entire chunks of the West Bank without asking the Palestinians what they think about it, without you know, any sort of negotiations. It's just a unilateral, like, land grab, essentially. And so, you know, part of this, uh, the impetus for why this is happening now or why it was, I guess, supposed to happen now, um, you may remember back in January, the Trump administration unveiled their peace plan. Uh, I'm saying that with air quotes. I, I would say uh, most experts, and myself included, would not necessarily call it a peace plan, it was developed by the U.S. and Israeli government without actually any input whatsoever from Palestinian leaders. And so they basically laid out this plan that gave the green light to Israel to go ahead and annex parts of the West Bank without really any consultation with the Palestinians. And so this was, you know, like you said, Zach, widely considered to be a, a disaster for people who have, have been committed to and working towards this concept of a two-state solution, of, of a, you know, safe, secure, independent Israel living alongside a safe and secure and prosperous independent Palestine. Um, and that's because if Israel just annexes entire chunks of the West Bank, these chunks are not all, like, connected. They're, they're a lot of, like, disparate little kind of enclaves throughout the West Bank. And so it would essentially leave the West Bank, which, again, is supposed to be part of, like, the heart of, like, the Palestine, the country of Palestine— looking like Swiss cheese, right? And so it would be really hard for Palestine to be a viable state because it would have all these little chunks of Israel inside of it. And so it's, you know, this again was meant to be all kind of worked out between the two sides as part of like a final status deal. And instead it was just going to be Israel going, yeah, no, that's not working for us. So we're just going to take what we want and good luck to everyone else. And so it was really, really like a huge moment of upending years and years of, you know, consensus on how this this is all going to play out. And it was dramatic and huge and momentous. And then nothing happened. So uh, as with all things Israel-Palestine, this is pretty complicated uh, in terms of what was going to be annexed, what might not be, where it would be. The whole thing was under discussion. But it, it seems like 
um, there had been a few things that conspired together to to derail the annexation plan. And I, I guess I want to start with um, the internal Israeli politics, which were complicated on two different sides, right? There's the the current coalition after the last election. So this is a parliamentary system, so you need a bunch of different parties, a very fragmented parliamentary system. It's mostly very right-wing, with the exception of one major partner of current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, which is a party led by uh, Benny Gantz, who is a former IDF general. Um, and Gantz's IDF party, being the Israel Defense Forces, the Israeli military. Yes. Um, Gantz's party uh, is a sort of center-right party that in theory had been open to annexation, but it wasn't clear how enthusiastic they were about it. And they did well in the last elections, sort of fragmented during coalition talks. But the point is, Netanyahu, given the nature of his parliamentary coalition, needs this more centrist party and faction uh, in order to get any annexation plan through parliament. But the rest of his coalition is extremely right-wing. So this created two problems for annexation. Uh, on the right, the settlers, the parties uh, who were really committed to the idea of annexation and were really pushing for it in the first place, were disappointed with the Trump plan. They thought that it its even theoretical recognition of a Palestinian state was not acceptable from their point of view. And so pursuing annexation alongside or as part of under the auspices of the Trump plan would not be acceptable to them, right? They they hated it. They wanted Israel to just take stuff on their own, take all the land, uh, and generally were dubious about some kind of limited annexation plan. Now, Gantz, on the other side, wanted any kind of annexation to be part of negotiations with the U.S., and even, it, it seems, under some kind of consultation with the Palestinians, which was never going to happen. It seemed like he was a lot more lukewarm about this plan than it may have sounded during the election when he seemed quite open to it, maybe because of a perception that it was popular among the Israeli public, which is sort of unclear. But the point is that Gantz wanted Netanyahu to do this in coordination with the United States and the international community uh, and uh, maybe possibly the Palestinians. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, was sort of split, right? There were competing American factions. David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, was very up on annexation. Jared Kushner, uh, who who seems honestly kind of delusional, thought that the peace plan that he helped, he helped come up with was actually a peace plan, not like a fig leaf for Israel to take a bunch of land. So he was angry that Israel was doing this unilaterally or in any way not necessarily following the script of the peace plan, quote unquote, that he had put together. Uh, so under these conditions, it was difficult to imagine what kind of annexation plan would be acceptable, both to Gantz and, and, and Kushner, uh, and I don't want to say the U.S. because the U.S., again, is fragmented under Trump, and the settler far-right parties on the other hand. So you end up being stuck in between these things, and Netanyahu was having difficulty figuring out what kind of annexation he could go forward with that would make everybody happy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point just in, in general, right? Just to kind of recap that for, for listeners who may have who may be wondering, wait, what's actually happening? On one end, you have people telling Netanyahu, wait, it is not time yet. Like, you, we can maybe get some support from America and others to, to kind of back this plan. And on the other side, you had people being like, any annexation of this kind that follows the general traits of the of the peace plan that Kushner laid out and that Trump laid out 
would be basically recognizing Palestine as a state. And so he's caught between a rock and a hard place um, and, and why he hasn't moved forward. I do want to dig into the peace plan a little bit because I think it, it set the the scene for this a bit more than, than we've let on. I mean, the, the actual, the peace plan that Kushner laid out really gave about 30% of territory in the West Bank to, to Israeli control. And that is the same territory, something known as Area C, um, or a lot of it known as Area C. Um, that, that is what Netanyahu was thinking of annexing. And so in a sense, you had Netanyahu be like, well, it's already been given to us. Right by the U.S. Like, and to be fair, I mean, Netanyahu has already agreed to this peace plan. Why wouldn't he? Because it is great for Israel. Um, and so he was kind of like trying to move forward with it without the Palestinians who um, did not negotiate at all as part of, uh, or at least openly negotiate with the Trump administration as it was working on this. Um, in big part because Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And so they decided uh, we're going to cut off all communications here. Uh, still, that was a choice that they made. So Netanyahu moving forward with this um, always seemed likely because why wouldn't he take advantage of a time where Trump is in office before he leaves and, you know, President Biden may be tougher on Israel down the line. Well, assuming Biden wins the election, he's not sure, right? And we're and we're not saying, to be clear, that there is a 100% <laughs> chance that Trump loses. No, right. But I mean, the, the, but I'm saying like if you're Netanyahu and you're recognize that you now have the greatest chance to do everything you want with right. Trump in office, you're going to take advantage of the few months you have. Right. Where, like, you, you're guaranteed that he's in office. In case uh, there's a President Biden. Right, in case there's a President Biden. So I, this makes total sense why he kind of made this sprint, but then found the, these hurdles at the end. And then one point I'll, I will make stronger later on, um, I do, like, this is all uh, an omni-shambles in the sense of, you know, Netanyahu's decision-making, what the U.S. had signaled, et cetera, et cetera. But this has not only been a long-term problem of the peace process, this has just been a longer-term problem of U.S. signaling and, and policy towards Israel, basically setting the stage, you know, presidents, Democrat and Republican before Trump, that could have dealt more strongly with this settlers issue, could have dealt more strongly with this annexation issue, and didn't. And so Trump, in a way, is kind of like the greatest manifestation of this ambivalent American policy uh, towards, towards settlers and towards uh, the West Bank territory. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's a there are a couple other factors that we we should probably talk about before we we move on in terms of like why this didn't happen. Um as Zach and Alex as you both just, you know, laid out very well and clearly, um I think that's all absolutely right. But there are additional factors that I think influenced Netanyahu's decision to hold off on annexation. And one is the reaction of the international community. So so, you know, having the backing of the United States uh, is really important for anything that Israel does because it's, you know, their most powerful partner. Um, you know, when we'll talk about this more in the second half, but the U.S., you know, gives Israel, you know, billions of dollars in, in security aid and um, and even more in, in military contracts and things like that um, for, for weaponry and all sorts of stuff. But the rest of the international community, for the most part, um, is not so keen on a lot of Israel's decisions when it comes to the, the Palestinian conflict. Um, but they've largely been kind of, you know, powerless. Or, or in recent years, it's, you know, they, they will make a statement at the UN or they will try to push things through, but the U.S. always, you know, blocks it or votes against it. And it sort of seems like the the international community has kind of like thrown up its hands, uh, in in my opinion, um, and just kind of you know there's not much we can do, and you know there's nothing we're going to do. Um, but when 
this plan of annexation started being talked about as a serious possibility. We actually saw a very strong reaction from the international community that I think, in my opinion, uh, may have actually surprised Netanyahu and and some of the right uh, in Israel. I, I don't think they're surprised that the international community would be upset about this, but I think they're surprised that the level of um, of ire and, and outrage and you know threats of sanctions and um, and all sorts of things that I think were were maybe not expected. And so all of a sudden it was like, whoa, okay, uh, I thought we maybe were going to be able to get away with this, but people are really mad. Um, you know, Jordan was obviously really upset. Jordan being historically, you know, the the country that controlled the Palestinian territories and, you know, obviously a big player in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict back when it was called the Israeli-Arab conflict for a reason. And so you saw a lot of like, real kind of visceral anger and and very real threats of action. Um, and then on the Palestinian side, you know, we, we've been talking about this as if they're kind of a, a non-entity in this. And that's because in some, you know, to some degree they were in the sense that this plan was kind of worked out between the U.S. and Israel and that, you know, unilateral annexation, uni literally meaning one, which means that they were, Israelis were not, you know, asking the Palestinians that this was okay. Can we steal your land, please? Can we steal it? Right. Um, but they still have a vote here. Um, not literally a, a vote, but they have, you know, ways of making their um, their feelings and thoughts on this heard. And, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, um, the, the head of the, the Palestinian Authority, which is the kind of interim Palestinian government that was set up under, um, after the Oslo Accords, to basically administer the the Palestinian controlled parts of the West Bank in partnership with Israel. So so the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas have been working with uh you know under uh, this kind of security cooperation agreement in the West Bank. And and it's really important to understand that like the way it was set up is that the the Palestinian Authority was able to kind of uh have administration over like certain kind of internal things within Palestinians like internal policing um, and other things. But when it came to like security and bigger things, they had to work with Israel. And this is something that is, as you know, Israel has found incredibly useful to have the Palestinian Authority be working there in partnership with the Israeli authorities to, you know, to essentially keep the West Bank uh, from, you know, turning into something like Gaza, right? Or, or from erupting into the kind of, uh, you know, violence that we saw during the intifadas and things like that. So, what happened is that when this annexation plan was, you know, started to be uh, talked about as a real possibility, Mahmoud Abbas, you know, made a threat and said, look, I will cut off all security cooperation with Israel. I'll do it. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't care, like, if this will hurt us or, you know, or whatever, but I will do it. And, you know, he has made threats like this before and not followed through. But I think kind of that in conjunction with the U.S. suddenly getting a what seemed like cold feet or, or not being as, as strong uh, a backer of this annexation plan as, as Bibi, as Netanyahu had maybe thought, plus the international community, you know, and Benny Gantz kind of backing away, like this kind of confluence of forces, all of a sudden Netanyahu was like, oh, I was about to take a big step and it turns out the ground is shifting underneath me. So I'm going to back my foot up. And, and so, you know, I think that's why we see this like weird, I mean, it was really bizarre. Like the whole world was expecting on July 1 that this annexation would start to actually happen. And July 1 just came and went and it was just kind of like crickets. Like, oh, we're not doing this? Um, and so now, you know, we're stuck in this like weird limbo where it's like, what's going to happen next? I don't know. And 
Jen, that's a good question, the sort of going forward thing. And the answer is that it it's totally unclear if and when annexation will come back on the table as a plausible thing. And there are at least two things uh, that I think are making it difficult for Netanyahu to act unilaterally here. Um, the first is uh, that he's on trial, you may know, uh, for his corruption scandals, various different corruption scandals that we have discussed on the show before. Uh, but they're very, very serious, carry the possibility of jail time. Uh, and that is uh, damaging, I would say, to his political fortunes, but not so much as the second thing, uh, which is a major, major resurgence of coronavirus that's going on in Israel right now. Uh, Israel handled the first wave quite well by international standards, uh, to the point where Netanyahu was going out and saying, people should go enjoy themselves, go to bars and stuff like that, have a beer. I forget exactly the language used, but it was it was pretty similar to that because it looked like they had it beat or at least contained. But now there's this uh, this massive resurgence uh, and, and one of the world's most serious second waves in Israel, and it's it's totally out of control right now. And that is tanking his popularity. Uh, there have been significant anti-Netanyahu protests. There was a big one in Jerusalem this week, uh, which is uh, pretty striking, uh, especially because it was young people. Unlike in the U.S., the younger generation is actually more conservative in Israel on average than certainly than the oldest generation, which is sort of the stalwarts of the old left-wing establishment. So exactly. when, when Netanyahu is getting a series of young people riled up about uh, the handling of the coronavirus and their economic prospects, you've had a lot of Israeli young people moving in with their parents again during this this process because they can't afford, like many other people around the world, they can't afford rent anymore. Uh, and so they're really mad. And Netanyahu's, uh, his approval rating is really, really low. And Gantz is mad at him, uh, and it, it seems like it would be very difficult under these circumstances to rally a coalition around annexation that wouldn't feel like he's just trying to distract from the coronavirus outbreak, which is Israel's biggest number one, like, top-level concern right now. And so long as this is happening, and so long as he remains unpopular as, as a result of this, there are odds that his coalition falls apart. Uh, so he has to manage that number one, and that means managing the outbreak effectively. Um, and so, so as long as this is going on, I suspect it will be very difficult for any kind of annexation to move forward. Yeah, it's hard to imagine any rational leader to decide to take a massively controversial step like this at a time when everyone else is thinking about their literal health and economic safety, uh, right? When people are losing their jobs and are worried about just sending their kids to school and anything else, the fact that you would take this international uh, you know, massive controversial uh, step and then kind of go, well, I can't, I don't understand why people are mad. Like that would make no sense, right? So I think Netanyahu is smart here and uh, to back away for multiple reasons, but if anything, just for his own political survival as you laid out. I also think, and this is, you know, more um, circumstantial or, or rather I'm, I'm guessing here, but one could imagine that the Kushners and the Trumps of the world are kind of, keeping like approval for annexation as an ace in the hole, right? As the election ap uh, approaches, uh, Trump is going to need to safeguard evangelical support for his reelection. And evangelicals in the United States love this idea, love the fact that Israel gains more territory from the West Bank or that settlers are more codified as a, as a sovereign part. Um, so, one could imagine that they're at the moment, based on coronavirus, based on a whole bunch of factors, they go, why don't we hold on this with the added benefit that maybe down the line, maybe September, October, et cetera, you know, Trump goes, fine, let it happen. Israel moves forward. And then you kind of 
create this massive, uh, even, you know, de- foreign policy debate in the U.S. presidential election about what to do about Israel. And uh, as I know we'll talk about further, there's a changing landscape in the United States about support towards Israel, especially between Democrats and Republicans. And and lo- and we've talked about this on the show before, and we, this has been a long-term thing. But where the traditional sort of support for Israel overall has existed, that's starting to break. Um, and making that a campaign issue may be something the Trump administration wants to do as it heads into November. And Biden, I'm sure, wants would want to have that debate, but it's tougher ground uh, based on sort of shifting uh, priorities among the voting public. So that's a perfect place for us to stop because when we get back, we're going to get into all that stuff Alex was just hinting towards. We're going to talk about the changing nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship, starting with, uh, well, the changes on the Democratic side of the aisle. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about Israel's strangely shrinking and maybe disappearing plan to annex parts of the West Bank. I think one of the most important aspects of the situation that's sort of been maybe a little soft played or underplayed in the overall coverage of it is the way that this is changing American domestic politics over Israel. One of the most striking examples is a piece of legislation by Senator Chris Van Hollen, a relatively mainstream Democrat, that would limit the use of U.S. aid to Israel. It wouldn't cut off the aid exactly. It would just say that Israel is not allowed to use any U.S. dollars on activities that would be related to annexing the West Bank. Uh, This is um, potentially unenforceable, right? Israel could just spend (laughs) other dollars on West Bank annexation, and then the U.S. money would compensate in other areas. But what it is is a warning to Israel that aid is now on the table, that the U.S. and specifically the Democratic Party, which might well be taking power in November and will almost certainly be taking power, if not in November, in the next few years, uh, is ready to punish Israel for its actions uh, if it it crosses the line and detonates the two-state solution. And that was not a possibility in recent memory, right? Even under the Obama administration, it was relatively cautious with aid, which it it viewed as most generally seen as bipartisan and sacrosanct. Uh, So I guess the question is, why are Democrats, and, and Van Hollen, again, is a mainstream Democrat. There's uh, much more left-wing ideas about how to do this coming from uh, people like 
AOC and Ilan Omar, uh, who constitute, and Bernie Sanders, who constitute the sort of left pole of the conversation here that the Democratic Party is rapidly moving towards. Uh, so I guess my question, Alex, is uh, what's happened to the Democrats? A couple of things. One is, and, and I don't have the polls in front of me, but polls have shown that the the basic shift underway is that younger Americans um, tend to care less about the Israel-Palestine issue. Also, um, as you alluded to, liberals are moving more toward, against Netanyahu uh, and his policies. And so there is sort of, a, just a, in terms of voting, right, in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of voting, the Democratic Party that's forming the base of the Democratic Party is moving further away from this view of like the U.S.-Israel special relationship and Netanyahu's role in leading that country. The other aspect is just Netanyahu himself. He has turned off a lot of American politicians to the point that I remember um, back in the day, I like interviewed, I did this whole story on, on Pete Buttigieg and his views towards Israel when he was you know running for president. And he had pretty mainstream Democrat ideas. And I remember talking to his campaign and they they were like really scared that I would publish anything along the lines of Buttigieg supports Israel. And what the point they made to me was he supports Israel, but not Netanyahu. That's the distinction that they make um, and that Buttigieg and others are making is that there's a distinction between like, yes, Israel is still an ally of the United States. We still support it. There should still be a relationship, but Netanyahu is the problem. Uh, and that's a tough nut to crack because you he keeps surviving. He keeps winning elections. He keeps staying in power for years and years and years, um, which only gives him more authority in a sense to follow along with the policies he wants to follow. Whereas you have the shifting, um, you know, viewpoints in the United States, especially from younger folks uh, and others. You now have this fight in which you have at least the Democratic Party, uh, or sorry, and then the third thing I should say, and this is important, is Trump is also somewhat politicized the Israeli issue. Um, it is hard for Democrats to follow Trump on pretty much anything related to domestic or foreign policy. The fact that he has um, gotten so close to Netanyahu sees himself as perhaps the greatest friend Israel has ever had, something that Netanyahu has called him, um, you know, makes it really hard for Democrats to kind of go along with that. And so you now have Netanyahu in one space, you have Democrats moving in another uh, and this was always going to lead to a bigger fight down the line to the point that, as you mentioned, you know, someone in the pretty mainstream center part of the Democratic Party is now laying down a pretty clear signal that, you know, Israel, you're on notice here. Yeah. So I want to push back a little bit, uh, Alex, on on what you said. And I think um, I generally agree with with your assessment there um, and particularly on, on the, the Democratic kind of politics of, you know, elections and, you know, Pete Buttigieg. I remember your reporting uh, at the time, you know, when when Pete Buttigieg was was still in the race and it was, was really sharp and spot on. Um, one thing, though, when you mentioned that that younger voters in America um, just, you know, in particular and voters just don't care as much about um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I would actually push back on that um, a, a bit. I think it's actually less that they don't care. And I think it's more that, in particular, that younger Democratic and progressive voters actually care a lot about the conflict. They just care in a different way. Um, I think the idea of seeing kind of the Palestinian cause as as part of this broader push for social justice is a very big kind of movement um, on the left and, and also among young evangelicals um, who have broken uh, to some degree with the kind of more establishment evangelical kind of support for Israel and who see it um, you know, support for Palestinian rights and Palestinian self-determination as as a cause that is, you know, wrapped up in the broader kind of social justice movement that, you know, these people uh, have been, you know, essentially left stateless for decades. And, 
you know, there's a very real and I would say fair um, perception out there among the left, but also internationally, that the Palestinians um, kind of as a as a you know group and as uh, as a political actor, uh, and particularly in the West Bank, less so in, in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, um, have tried pretty much everything they can and everything they can think of to try to get like recognition and try to get like international support for the state of Palestine, right? They have tried to fight back against Israel in in legitimate legal ways, right? Rather than, you know, a, a largely abandoning kind of the 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 violent model, particularly in the West Bank, but doing things like going to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, or going to the UN, or going to like international bodies and trying to get recognition and trying to like bring, um, you know, uh, attention to, you know, their cause and saying, look, we're going to use legal channels. We're going to use like the things that you said that we we're supposed to do because we're not supposed to use violence. And they've tried to do that and they've been blocked every single step of the way, in large part by the United States, you know, from being a, a veto-wielding member of the United Nations Security Council. And so there's a very real perception that the Palestinians have basically been left with no options. Um, and that, you know, that also coincides with, like we discussed earlier, this right-wing shift in Israeli politics, where, you know, the, the left in Israel, the kind of, um, you know, Bougie Herzog, Isaac Herzog, like the kind of traditional left in Israel that that used to be powerful has, has basically evaporated um, as a as a political kind of a viable political movement and and anyone that can actually win elections. And so I think again, there's this very real sense that it's I don't think it's a it's a lack of care um, and that no one cares anymore and we don't want to support Israel because who cares? I think it's it's we want to be engaged in this conflict and in this in this you know conversation in a way that like we're going to stand up for Palestinian, you know, rights and self-determination. I think that also goes to having voices like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar in the Democratic Party in a way that we didn't. You know, we have Muslim American representatives elected to the Democratic Party, and that's obviously going to change things, right? That's going to have voices of, for people who, you know, Rashida Tlaib in particular, who have like actual connections to like the the experiences of Palestinians and who, you know, are not going to have a traditional kind of view of U.S. support for Israel is sacrosanct. We can't touch anything, and so I think that's a really important shift to understand. I, I want to say two things that that play into yeah. that, Jen. Because um, you're you're talking about sort of long term trends, but I think there are two more immediate short term things that have really crystallized uh, what what seemed like it was probably an, a, an inevitable byproduct of, of structural changes to sure. the conflict in Israel and to American public opinion in general. The first is that Netanyahu has pursued polarization as a deliberate political strategy. He's a very savvy observer of American politics, right? The guy, he spent a lot of time in the United States. He knows the U.S. pretty well. And he knows that American politics has been bifurcated uh, and increasingly polarized by virtue of the two major parties. Um but instead of trying to pursue the traditional Israeli strategy, which is try to uh, tamp down on those divides as much as possible, Netanyahu has gambled that he can align himself with the Republican Party, doing things like going to Congress uh, with the support of Republicans to give a speech opposed to the Iran deal, right, which infuriated Democrats in the Obama administration, uh, but solidified his support among Republicans. The idea being he thinks that these long-term structural trends are going to make de Democrats critical of his version of right-wing Israeli politics anyway. So might as well align with the uh, Republicans while we can. Now, this is paid off in the short term, but in the long run, when Democrats retake power, 
uh, one uh, Democratic Hill staffer referred to Netanyahu as uh, the greatest Palestinian rights advocate currently in politics, right, when I was talking to him recently, uh, for this reason, right, because now he's made it such that support for Israel is is in a way a Republican cause, and Democrats are free to take more and more left-wing positions on it because it's identified with the Trump administration by virtue of a calculated strategy by the Netanyahu government. Uh, and the second thing is, is annexation itself, right? This is really... Uh, it's hard to overstate how much of a paradigm shift this is, right? For a really long time, the centrist argument in the United States has been Israel is committed to a two-state solution. They've tried to find peace over and over again. They just do not have a Palestinian partner that is willing to make the necessary concessions. Is be- right. like This is the thing that has justified American sort of one-sided support for Israel for, for quite some time in terms of the mainstream understanding in both parties of how things work. But now— with the Israeli government officially promising to do something that would detonate the two-state solution, uh, potentially permanently or fatally undermining it, there's some debate as to whether that is actually what would happen, but it, it, it is certainly a unilateral move that blows up the paradigm in the way that it's supposed to operate. You now have Democrats no longer being able to say, I think Israel is committed to a two-state solution if they do this. And so that means they have to rethink the way they approach these things. And you're, you're seeing really radical shifts among people who are influential on, on the liberal ref, left side of the uh, of, of the spectrum. For example, you have Peter Beinart, who's a very influential Jewish-American intellectual, writing an essay arguing that Israel has given up on the two-state solution, and now it's time for, for some kind of one-state solution, which would basically disestablish Israel as a formally Jewish state and go for some kind of uh, democratic, very, they're various different setups, but a, a democratic system where Palestinians are citizens of this new country, Israel, Palestine, or whatever you want to call it, uh, which is, he's been, you know, one of the biggest two-state advocates for a very long time now. So Peter shifting um, is, is a really big deal. And and the second is uh, Elon Goldenberg, who is a policy hand on Israel in the Obama administration, writing an essay arguing that the U.S., response to unilateral annexation should be to recognize Palestine as an independent state. Basically, the argument being if Israel blows up the brokered two-state solution, the United States needs to punish Israel and advance the two-state solution unilaterally on its own. So that means basically just saying there is a sovereign Palestine in the West Bank and Israel does not have rights to control it anymore. Uh, Elon's position um, would have been radical, uh, just a few years ago or even just a year ago. Now, compared to Peter's position, it, it, it's like almost mainstream, right? Because it's still adhering to the two-state paradigm. And this shows just how far left annexation is pushing the Democratic Party and what the consequences could be in terms of Israel, which depends on bipartisan support for its aid package and diplomatic support, like vetoing all these critical Security Council resolutions. Uh, it, it, like th- this this is really a bridge too far for even mainstream Democrats, and it's starting to show. It's it's worth noting that uh, although most people, especially lately, you know, we've talked about Ilhan Omar and Rashid Tlaib and all those others, and, and they deserve credit, a lot of people kind of point to Bernie Sanders breaking the taboo of criticizing Israel pretty openly during a presidential election um, as kind of where, where the dam broke in, in part uh, among Democrats, right? Being a, a not only a prominent politician himself, but also a Jewish man, that that kind of helped, you know, allow, kind of made it okay for other people to start criticizing Israel. And then we've seen an actually pretty big consequence of this. Um, uh, there was a race for a Democratic primary for a congressional seat in, in New York, and uh, Elliot Engel, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, lost to Jamal Bowman, 
um, for many reasons. Uh, most likely that Engel was caught on a hot mic kind of saying, like, I don't need to be here if it weren't for, like, me having a challenger and a whole bunch of other things, I wouldn't be here. Here um, in this context was a social justice protest. Exactly. Right, right. And the George Floyd stuff, right. Um, but some people I've talked to and others have cited uh, the fact that, you know, Engel has been a pretty strong proponent of the U.S.-Israel relationship and defending Israel and, and if I recall correctly, um, voted against the Iran nuclear deal and all that. And, and Bowman consistently sort of hammered him on that. And so is that the main reason uh, Engel seems to have lost? I know it's not an official tally, but it looks bad for him. Um, uh, is that why? No, it's not. But that was a big part of even just a Democratic primary um, debate for a congressional seat. So this is the kind of thing we're seeing. Now, one thing I'll add to, to our debate here um, is my general view that like the peace process not died before Trump and this notion of a two-state solution died way before this moment. I mean, the, Amer as we've alluded to, American presidents, Democrat and Republican in the past, have all basically kind of done two things. One, given Israel tons of leeway, um, and, and two, kind of not, tackled the power imbalance in the negotiation between Israel and Palestine. I mean, the, the, we have, some have, you know, paid lip service to the Palestinian cause. Others have been pretty more online with um, what's going on with, with the Israeli government. But on the whole, it's just kind of been like, hey, Israel, don't allow settlers. And, you know, we're, we're going to punish you if you allow more settlers to go forward. And then Israeli settlers went in and we kind of did nothing. Um and et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so on. And to the point that now you have like upwards of what, 600,000 settlers um, in the West Bank, et cetera. So it's, uh, this was always going to be true. That was, it's almost, it's the condition on the ground. And if and a, there's a part of me that goes, yes, there are changing, you know, political fortunes and there are different views here and, and Netanyahu's a part of it, of course. Um, but it's also just seems like the situation on the ground is what it is. It is, the, the seeds have been planted long ago and this is the fruition now. The, 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 the literal conditions on the ground have changed. And so it's, you can't put that genie back in the bottle to mix a thousand metaphors in, in, this, in this rant. <laughs> um, but like, it, it, it just seems like at some point you look at the situation, you go, this is now the way we have to go about it. That there's no, if you care very deeply about kind of, you know, how the Palestinians move going forward. And if you're a critic of, of Israel, this is like the only kind of way you can express yourself because going back to a two-state solution as if everything was okay, as if it were 1993 again, um, makes no sense. Many things have changed. Every, so uh, it, it's just a, a reality at this point that the peace process, as we knew it, was dead. And so you do need to have the rethink that we're seeing. I think um, your assessment and analysis is correct in the sense that that's how, I mean, that's that's the argument that essentially, you know, Netanyahu and many are making is that, look, Reality on the ground has changed. Sorry about that. But like, we need to have a new reality. The thing that that kind of misses, and I don't say that you're missing it, but I mean, that that argument kind of purposely misses something, which is that that's not an accident, right? That the the strategy of actively encroaching and, and building up these settlements is an active strategy to change the facts on the ground as a, a you know, sort of fait accompli to kind of make it so that, well, sorry, too late. And the United States, you're absolutely right when it comes to, you know, how the U.S. has kind of been such a staunch supporter of Israel and only mostly paid lip service. I mean, you may remember the very, very, like, last, you know, month or two of the Obama administration, Obama took a major dramatic step, which, you know, when you actually think about it, it's like, wow, even that was dramatic, 
you know, Obama's on the way out of office, Trump is on his way in, and there comes a, a UN vote um, basically condemning new settlements. And the Obama administration made this historic decision to abstain, right? They didn't even vote in favor of condemning it. Like, it wasn't even that dramatic. It was just, we're going to abstain, meaning that traditionally the United States would have jumped in to stop that and shut it down with a veto and said, nope, we are not condemning Israel. Um, and the Obama administration made this kind of dramatic step. But the fact that, you know, it was because Obama was on his way out uh, that he was able to do that and, and not worry about facing the political consequences. But, you know, but the other thing, too, you know, talking about how the negotiations have gone historically, I, I think, you know, the argument was always, yes, the U.S. is a really close friend of Israel. Right. But it was always kind of explained as like, that's why we need the U.S. involved in this conflict, right? We don't need a neutral arbiter. We don't need Switzerland to come in here and start, you know, negotiating things. We need the United States because of that close relationship with Israel. By being such a close friend of Israel and giving them all this security assistance, the U.S. will then be able to pull Israel and extract concessions by saying, look, we're such a good friend of yours that we will actually push you and to do things um, that you don't want to do because we'll guarantee your security. Meaning things like, you know, letting uh, the, you know, the creation of an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel exist, right? And so the, the argument was that, well, yes, the U.S. is not a neutral arbiter and they're obviously on the side of, of Israel, but that's a good thing because, you know, it takes a friend to be able to, to push someone to do things they don't want to do. That didn't actually really happen. It, it did in some in some instances, I think the Oslo process in particular, um, you know, Camp David, I think the U.S. did actually, uh, you know, work to try to, to try to push the Israelis to make concessions. Um, but the problem is that, that that hasn't ever really gone anywhere, right? All these peace kind of plans have all just kind of limped along. And meanwhile, you know, Netanyahu and also the settler movement have kind of created these facts on the ground, like you said. And so we are now in a position where everyone's like, well, oops, sorry, this is what it looks like. I guess we're just going to have to have one state or no, you know, there's not going to be a Palestine. Sorry, y'all, but this is just what happened. And it's because that is a concerted decades-long effort to make those conditions happen and to block Palestinians every step of the way from trying to, to you know, you know, change the situation on the ground. So I think it's it's incredibly problematic to say that, well, sorry, this is what it, what the reality is. We can't do anything about it. We just need to accept it. There actually are things that we could do uh, as the United States to push Israel. Um, but things like, you know, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, things like, you know, acknowledging Israeli control uh, over the Golan Heights, those are not the things that, that are that are necessary to push Israel. That's giving Israel what it's what it wants. And if the Trump administration had done those things, saying, okay, we'll recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, we'll we'll move the embassy to Jerusalem, but in exchange, you have to give up significant, you know, concessions to the Palestinians, that would at least be justifiable. But that's not what we're seeing, which means that the kind of entire concept of the US being you know, a, a power that can pull Israel and extract concessions seems to have just completely evaporated. And that means, you know, that the idea of of the peace process and the two-state solution is, in fact, more or less dead. I don't know about that. Uh, it is possible that the peace process in the way that we have discussed it and understood it uh, for the past few years is, in fact, dead. Without the two-state solution, that is to say some version 
of there being, uh, you know, two separate independent states in these territory, both of which are viable and sovereign on their own land, uh, that may not be dead either. Just because the U.S. strategy for the past few years has failed doesn't mean you couldn't end up imagining a scenario in which moves towards unilateral annexation or creeping annexation, as, as it's often termed the current Israeli policy, can be undone, right? It just, it's unclear in the future, uh, which which of those things is going to happen? Uh, and I, I've heard this from Israeli leftists too, who are like, look, the status quo is truly awful. They're more unsparing than Americans are. But their view is also, mm-hmm. uh, under the right set of circumstances, uh, Israel can be coerced back towards the two state lines. It just question. It's just a question of international and specifically American will, which is why. Yeah. No, I I yeah. agree absolutely. Yeah, which is why I think. Uh, this new development and the, and the shifts in the Democratic Party are so important. Because uh, if there's one thing that I, I think about Joe Biden, it's not that he has fixed views that make him a centrist. It's that he his policy views tend to be a reflection of whatever the consensus is of the Democratic Party at the time. So if Joe Biden does, in fact, win the election in the fall and we get a Biden administration in January, you can imagine a Democratic Party more willing to punish Netanyahu and Israel for creeping annexation and for its behaviors, influencing and and maybe even breathing life back into the currently uh, dead-seeming two-state paradigm. Uh, and, and we're going to leave it there. I want to thank all of you for listening to listening to us. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for his great and difficult work uh, in these corona times. And I want to encourage all of you listeners to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you again next week. Bye.